0: beginning in verse 1, second letter that Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right Because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God, may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May this become the word of God for us more than just ink on a page, but a divine encounter with our creator. This was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church, an infant baby church, that he planted and was forced to leave long before he was ready. Now, we, we won't spend too much time on this, but if, if you have any questions about this particular church, I encourage you to find on our website and our podcast, siouxfallsconnection.com or iTunes podcast. We looked at some of the backdrop of this church in the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. But if you want to, I encourage you to, this week, read this letter over and over and over again. Hopefully by the time we're through this with this series, you will have read this multiple times. And and if you want to read more, you can go to Acts chapter 17, where we find the history of this church. Paul goes to Thessalonica, as is his custom, and on multiple Sabbaths, he meets in the synagogue and starts to tell these people about who Jesus is. And as is his custom, he makes people really angry. Now, don't be surprised by that. Remember, the symbol, our movement, the symbol of Christianity is a cross. And you don't get hung on a cross by telling people things that they want to hear. You don't get hung on a cross by telling people, oh, you're right, you're fine, keep believing what you're believing. You get hung on a cross by going right after the thing that people wish for and love the most so much that they want to kill you because they're afraid you're taking it. And so when Jesus sends out the apostles, the same thing happens. Remember, he says, look, The the, the student is not above his master. They hated me, they're going to hate you. They are sent out here, and we find the Apostle Paul going to these unreached places, people who had never heard the gospel. He goes into uh, probably the capital city of what would be the province of Macedonia, northern Greece, and he proclaims this good news of Jesus. Now they get mad, as again, as is would be the custom, and they start to argue, and they, start, they want to beat him, they throw him into prison, they, want to, they create a mob to come after him, and they start accusing him, I and mean, look, this guy is saying that Jesus is Lord, and Caesar is not Lord. And so, of course, as is Paul's custom, and as Jesus' is custom, ripping the things out of their hands that they really loved and really were looking to for satisfaction, he says, no, actually Jesus is, and this makes them angry. So he's run out of town, probably only a few weeks after he got there. So he planted this church and then was forced to leave long before he was able to really lead them towards maturity. But what we find in 1 and 2 Thessalonians is really interesting. And I I shared this with you in 1 Thessalonians. I'll say more about it in the coming weeks. But as we dig through this letter, in a lot of ways, I want to invite you into a kind of a boredom with it. I I want to invite you into somewhat like, like a boredom with 1 and 2 Thessalonians that is Paul writes letters to other churches that he either planted or he was connected to in some way and in the, like the book of Romans he writes like a theological manifesto for the center of that known world Rome and the church that was there and the book of first and second Corinthians he writes to a church that's really troubled has lots of ethical questions all sorts of awful awful nonsense going on in first and second Corinth or in in Corinth and so he writes to address those issues there's divisions in, in Corinth and then the letter to the Philippians, same way. He like he literally calls people out and he's like, Eodiah, Sintiche, get along, right? Calls them out in the crowd, stop fighting, agree with one another in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in first and second Thessalonians, we don't see him addressing any theological d- debate or any ethical dilemma or even division. Instead, what we see is just a very calm and loving good job well done look at all that God is doing in and through your church look at what God is doing I thank God for it and so I want to encourage you my prayer would be that in the decades to come this is the kind of letter boring though it may be that would be written about our church just a very well done look at what God's doing look at what's happening And so I want to invite you into kind of a boredom in that I want you to expect this kind of thing to happen in the life of our church. So I'm going to walk through a couple of principles here. I want you to see in this first five verses what it is that Paul is calling the church to be by commending it. And that is what we aspire to as a result. And then I want to maybe draw some conclusions and see some principles that I think are outlined in this chapter. Here's what I think he makes the case of as as he encourages and thanks God for this church, and he even boasts about them. I don't know if you caught that in our reading. A church worth boasting about is marked by genuine faith, growing love, and a deep hope in God's sovereignty. I think I can show you all these things in the first four to five verses. A church worth boasting about, like Paul does here for the Thessalonians to other churches, that kind of a church will be marked by a genuine faith, genuine lasting, a growing love, and a deep hope in God's sovereignty. I think I can show you all these things that Paul is thanking God for in this particular chapter in the first five verses. So as we begin to think about this, I just want to stop and ask you this question. You're here. Somebody invited you. What did someone say about this church when they said, hey, come to worship with these people what did that person invite you with? That is, what did that person, in effect, boast about? When they said, hey, come hang out with these strange people who meet in what used to be a comedy club, right? You don't know them. Come hang out with these people. And, they're, and you, like a normal, natural, like reasonable person, were like, that's crazy. No. And, and they were like, no come, it's this. And then fill in the blank. What was it that they boasted about? And when you begin to think about that, ask yourself this question. What are the other things that people boast about in the life of any church you know? What are the claims to fame? What are the things that people are really proud of that they genuinely like? Man, this is awesome. That church is this. This church is that. That church is this. This church is that. What are the things that people are really proud of and really boast about? when they talk about a particular church? Do they come to mind? Now, let's be perfectly honest with one another. I bet, and I want to push on this, I, maybe, maybe, but I bet they didn't say, hey, come meet the people in my church because they are abundant and steadfast in faith and persecution and affliction. Come meet the people in my church because they're full of grace and the peace of Christ, I bet you, a large amount of money that they said, "Hey, come hang out with this church. They have really cool music." Or whatever. They have a really neat fill- in-the blank, right? Have you heard people boast about this, talking about other church? Oh, that church. They have a, a really great pastor, right? A celebrity of a pastor. They have a really great band. They have a really cool building. They are really big. They're really small. They're really kind. They're really not kind. Well, I mean, they probably said something about it, and I bet you anything that, this is a, a large bet I would make, come come after me if somebody's like, no, no, somebody, hey, that church is really marked by faith and steadfastness and persecution. They're really marked by the grace of Christ. They're really marked by growing peace in our Father. Like, I doubt that's what they said, but I want to invite you into considering thinking about the church in these terms. I want to invite you to consider throwing out every single unbiblical thought you've ever had about a church. Every single unbiblical, unwarranted thought, accusation, or, like I don't know, conjecture about the church, and begin to let that be uprooted and supplanted with this. We saw this in the first chapter too, but look what he does. He says, Ultimately, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, Silvanus is the different ways to write Silas. This is his crew writing a letter to this church. We do it differently, right? We write on the the envelope who it goes to, and then on the corner we write, or on the back, the return address. It's different. Instead, it's saying this is who this is from. The return address is first. This is who this is to. This is what we see here. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to dig through some of those words and then begin to unpack what I think you'll see for the rest of those verses, one through five, that a church worth boasting about is marked by a genuine faith, a hope that is growing strong, or excuse me, a love that is growing strong, and a hope that the future is secure in God's kingdom. And what I first want you to apply here is a principle I think you see. It says, to the church... To the church, now there are some things that have to be done here. I know that in a strictly capitalistic society, we are driven to think and act like consumers. Almost all of our interactions with person, places, and things are driven from the perspective of a consumer. That is, your first question, whether you, when you wake up in the morning, when you walk in this room, or when you do anything, your first question, I promise you, is a consumer question. Something like, what do I get out of this? Sometimes, you probably don't even know it. It's so deeply ingrained in you that, like, you probably have a disappointment. Like, even right now, you're like, I don't feel good. And it's because you don't think you're getting something fruitful. And that consumer tendency that you've probably never been able to really articulate just exists as an angst where everywhere you go, you never get everything you want. You're never fully satisfied. You're always, I mean, you're the guy on the customer service line every week because it never turns out like you want it. You always send the food back. It's always someone else's fault. You're never quite happy, right? You just swipe to, oh, this is no good, I want what's next. This This is in you, and this is an angst that marks you because in a capitalistic society, our interaction with all reality is almost always through the lens of a consumer. The giving, taking, the buying and the selling, the transacting of goods and services. And even now, you're thinking, what good or service am I receiving? And later... If you haven't thought critically about that, again, if you haven't supplanted those kinds of assumptions that the world gives you with some biblical assumptions, namely about who Jesus is, what he's done, and what that makes us now, then even later you'll look back and go, did I get anything out of that? But he says, to the church. And I want you to see that the Bible is a church-oriented, church-centric, church-building document. The Bible, the entirety of the Bible, is a church-oriented, church-centric, church-building document. In the same way that one cannot be a football player without a team, one cannot be a biblical Christian without a church. Now, I apologize for the sports analogy. I'm working on a better one. Come help me with it. I don't have one. But in the world of professional sports, there is, in the last couple of decades, emerged what's called a free agent. A person can consider themselves a professional athlete... And freely, as an agent, go and, and interact and, and transact with different teams to play professionally for them. And in that moment, as a free agent, they can say, like, I'm a quarterback, right? Again, forgive the, the, the sports analogies. If you've got, like, a Settlers of Catan analogy, come find me and we'll, we'll figure it out together. Pokemon, whatever your thing is, okay? <laughs> we'll build a better one, right? But, like, you can't rightly say, I'm a football player if you don't have a team, right? if I even I was like, hey man, I'm a really, really good quarterback. The first thing you should ask is, oh cool, good for you. What team do you play for? And if I were like, no man, I don't do that. I don't, I don't, I don't, I've been burned by the team in the past. You know, have you seen the team? They're a mess. Teams are bad. They lose. I, I'm not that kind of football. I'm a different kind of football player. I'm a quarterback, but I don't got no team. It sounds absurd, right? Like I, I played, a, you know, I, maybe you, you play an instrument, but you have no orchestra, right? You have you, you have a position, but no team. And again, that seems silly, right, friend? <laughs> that is largely the language that people that would call themselves Christians in the Western world, use to describe their relationship to the church. I'm a Christian. Oh, do you belong to the body of Christ? A local assembly, a gathering, an ecclesia, literally this word here, called out people for his purpose? No, man, I've been burned by the church. I followed Jesus on my own. Okay. Don't miss this, though. That, that, That is not a biblical framework. And it works. You can get away with it in a culture that breathes the air of consumerism without knowing it. In a culture that ultimately worships what we can get, what we can buy, sell, and like the goods and services that we get, that you can get away with it. Because after all, if the church is just like Walmart, Target, or Kmart, then you're right, there's no real loyalty needed. You don't have to belong to it. You come get what you want, and then you move on. And when you begin to conceptualize of the church this way, It makes sense that you would think of the church as something that's strictly your individual choice, catering to your individual tastes. But I want to push against this. Every time this shows up in the Bible, this letter was written to a church. And if you don't hear anything else, the rest of what I even say about what it means to follow Jesus will mean nothing. It will mean nothing if it isn't lived out amongst other people who call themselves Christians and the church. There is no way to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, apart from the church. The Bible doesn't paint that picture. There's no letter that's written to a a context of people that aren't a church. Even in the very end, the very last of the revelation is what? At the very beginning, to the churches. And the revelation of God's final work is to the church. Now here's what I want to push on. Yes! The church is a mess. I already know. I know that. And you're thinking right now, like, and it's led by you? What a mess. I know. But I would encourage you, if you're out there looking for the perfect church, let me know when you find it, but please don't join it because you'll mess it up. The minute you show up, it will cease to be that thing, that unicorn that you've been seeking your whole life because the church, it's... Be careful where I trod next. Be very careful. The same reasons you probably like Target more than Walmart and why Kmart went out of business shouldn't be the same reasons you see yourself belonging to the bride of Christ. This local church, the church that Jesus laid down his life to save, calls it his bride, he takes seriously. Look, you know this as well as I do. If you come to me and you're like, "Hey, Jonathan, I like you. We're friends," but your wife Shelby, eh, not so much. <laughs> hey, come hang out. Hey, come on, man. Just come watch the game, Jonathan. Please don't bring your wife. You know we got beef, right? Like you know, like, I'm not gonna hang out with you. No. And if we, in our own fallen, state would feel that way about the people we love dearly how much more does jesus feel that way about his bride the one he laid down his life for i know she's not perfect but she's bought and paid for by jesus and the rest of this will make no sense unless you think about this so if you're looking at this church and you're like i don't like this this and this and this about this church again i encourage you don't use the language of target and kmart okay it's not not or after But if you think about the faithfulness and the grace of God that's manifestly evident with the people around you, that's something you want to belong to. You want to be that body. Even this, I use a strong word, a church. The Bible is a church-centric document. Now, we would know this, right? The Bible is a gospel-centric document. It is a Christ-centered document. But what does Jesus do when he sends his disciples out but to be his body? His church is the visible manifestation of what he has accomplished. And so as with Jesus, now so then with us. It begins with the building of God's people, climaxes at the choosing and saving and redeeming of God's people in Jesus Christ, and in the glory of God through that people forever and ever. The gates of hell, it says, will not prevail against the church. Everything else will be consumed. Now this is important, I want to speak against this, Uh, particular thing very carefully, Um, so what we have in our current culture, and I I don't think it's a bad thing, but I want to warn you about it. We have what we have in in, in our particular culture. If you're not a Christian, just kind of listen in on this, but uh, this is maybe for some of you like steeped in Christian culture. There's what we have. It's called the para-church. And now we're using Greek, which is my territory. Be careful, okay? Para means alongside, right? You know this, like the word paramedic. So the paramedic is not the doctor. The paramedic's job is to get you to the doctor, right? Like if the ambulance comes with a paramedic and they get you in the ambulance, but manage not to get you to the hospital, you would not believe that you had had a good interaction with a paramedic. In fact, at that point, you should probably call that paramedic, because we're Greek nerds at this point, pseudo-medic. You didn't really come alongside the doctor to get me there, you actually just kind of pretended to be the doctor and use it as a substitute. So also, there's a th- I just want to put this out there. Think seriously about what we call in American culture the parachurch. Maybe for you that's a college ministry. Uh, maybe for you that's a, maybe a community Bible study. Um, a, a good, pick anything that has its name, like the name Jesus on it involves maybe a Bible but just know, like in the back of your mind, ask yourself this question. Is this getting me to the bride of Christ? Or is this serving as some kind of like cheap substitute? Is this really a para church that will get me to Jesus and his bride? Or is this a pseudo-church? Pretending to be that. Ask yourself those questions. Because again, you if, if you're steeped heavily in, in the language and the and the emotions of consumer culture, you'll find it difficult. To tell the difference but this is to the church we are unashamed about this this is the church that's the thing that will prevail against the gates of hell that's the thing This is a church-centered document document so everything that we say in the life of our church with respect to second thessalonians will be explicitly for the purpose of leaving it out together and if you're like, I don't like this church, that's cool. Well, let us send you to a church that you can belong to. What you don't get to do is to choose to not belong to a church. Any more than, I don't know, some fake quarterback trying to live out the glory days pretends to be a football player while not belonging to a team. To the church of the Thessalonians, then this would have been a city, again, uh, capital city of the province of Macedonia, northern Greece, and it existed on a, a large thoroughfare. The, the city that still exists on what would have been Thessaloniki or Thessalonica is now Saloniki. But then he adds a word that, as is his custom to greet, he adds a word here that you don't see in 1 Thessalonians. Now, if you want to go back, turn over one page to the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. You'll see Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Sounds, sounds correct. Same kind of greeting to the church of the Thessalonians in God. And then I want you to just pay really c- quick attention, just something because I want you to see what Paul's doing here. Right after, in in 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, and what's the word right after God? Somebody say it. In chapter, and we're looking at 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. The. God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. But now, whoever said that, now here, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, it says, in God what? Our. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. This is a powerful thing that he's trying to say, look, God isn't just up there and out there and a father of creation, right? Like we think of mother nature. God is our father. God is our parent, our source of life. It says, God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see this. He begins with a greeting that he also began 1 Thessalonians with, and you see this elsewhere. And he reminds them of a few things. God is our Father. We're his children. But then he offers a blessing, grace and peace, from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Now, those are loaded words for Christians. Massively loaded words. There was no other ideology. There is no world religion. That has a concept of grace like Christians have. And the way we would define grace is we call it the unmerited favor of God. Unmerited. That is, the word merit would mean worthy. So there's the unworthy. We are not worthy of this goodness that God gives to us. And that fuels everything for us. And this is what happens. Paul repeats this, and he greets them this, he leads with this, and it's because Christians never get tired of being reminded of God's grace and the peace they now have with God because of Christ. Never get tired of it. The way we say this is, where the gospel is assumed, it's almost always absent. And where the gospel is not explicit, we regularly use the symbols of Christianity as a substitute for the content of the Christian witness. Have you heard this? You can go up to somebody and be like, Hey, are you, do you follow Jesus? And they'll go, oh yeah, I'm Methodist. Good for you. Who is Jesus? They'll be like, I'm Catholic. And those are not conversation starters. Those are meant to be conversation enders. They're meant to say, off, stay away. Here's the symbol of Christianity. Good enough. Do you love Jesus? Oh yeah, I go to this church. Oh great, that's where you hang out on Sunday morning. Who is Jesus? And what you will find in Western culture is that where the gospel is assumed, it's almost always absent. And we've happily used the substitutes, the symbols of Christianity in place of the content of the gospel. And I want to push on it. That, that is not how this works. First Corinthians 15 says it this way. He says, look, I, it's like the crescendo of his letter to the Corinthians. He says, I want to remind you, brothers, of what? The gospel. The gospel is not an entrance exam that you pass and then get to forget for the rest of your life. It is the thing. It is the only thing. What God has done for us in Jesus Christ is the thing that matters in all of eternity. It's the turning point. It's the climax. The book of Colossians says that all things come together in Christ. They're held together by Christ. We don't get tired of it. The last thing we would do is accept some silly substitute, some necklace that you would wear, some bumper sticker you would throw on the back of your car, some corny t-shirt or some cheesy movie and use that as a substitute for being changed by what God has done for you in Christ. Friend, his blood costs more than that. Stop pawning off cheap substitutes. Hear the good news and see that Christians never get tired of hearing it. The way we talk about this is that we have a growing awareness of our sinfulness not just our sin, but our like not, we just do bad things, but we're deeply broken people. We have a growing awareness of that, but we have a growing awareness of God's holiness. And Christians never get tired of what happens when we contemplate those two things. We regularly, we look at our sinfulness and we feel the shame. We feel the condemnation. We feel the, uh, the loneliness. We feel the guilt. We feel those things rack us. But then we look at God and we see his perfection and we feel humiliated and We feel unworthy and we feel like we can't ever measure up. And then we look at Christ and we realize there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we look at the Holy Perfect Father and we say, he's, he's dead. He's not a God and a slave master who's up there and out there. Did you get it? Christians regularly love to be reminded of how awful they are and how perfect God is because it just points to our only hope in the finished work of Christ. We love this. We don't, we don't pawn that off and allow substitutes to take the place. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't go, like, ripping off bumper stickers like a holy warrior. That's not... But if you have the audacity to attach, I don't know, the way you drive to Jesus... I don't, I'm not, good luck, then you had better be ready to give an account for the hope that it was in you. Like you had better be ready in your driving, in your living, you had better be ready to be explicit about the gospel. Hey, I noticed there's a fish on the back of your your car. What does that mean? I'm so glad you asked. I was lost and broken and in shame, condemned But before the foundation of the world, God sent his son to take my place so that now we can boldly approach the throne with confidence and I can run into the throne room, not as a a slave before the king, but as a child who jumps on the throne, jumps in the lap of the father and asks whatever he wants. Now, if you wear a necklace or a bumper sticker, whatever, for that purpose, carry on. But be careful. Our tendency is to use those things as substitutes. And Christians never get tired of the genuine article. We never get tired of being reminded, this is what gospel community is for us. There's a temptation to make it all about us, right? To make it like a you've been to a therapy group, okay? It's not gospel community, but this is the place where we open the scripture, we let our sin be exposed, and we gladly do so because there's no sin that can be exposed that hasn't already first been paid for by Christ. And that's what we mean when we say there's grace. And when Paul greets them and says, this is what this is about, grace for you, unmerited, undeserved, and yet freely received, peace. Ah, some of you need to hear this. God's not mad at you. If you are in Christ, if you see the finished work of Christ on your behalf, he's no longer mad. He's not got a frown on his face. He freely gives you approval in Christ. And for those of us that are in him now, we have grace. We have an unmerited gift. We have peace. I know for some of you, you lived under a mom or a dad that never affirmed you, never appreciated you, and you constantly wanted to prove. Even right now, you live live in a place where you're constantly trying to win the approval of people in authority. You try to look good around people, and I want to encourage you, that is an anti-gospel that will rob you of the joy that we freely have in Christ. That God our Father looks and sees the finished work of his Son. I know you couldn't be a perfect son or daughter for your Father. Oh, but thanks be to God, Jesus has been the perfect Son for us. And God is pleased with us in this. And then he gives us three marks, Right? It's a genuine faith. We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because what? Your faith is growing. Now he's just encouraging them. Remember chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians? He says, you're doing great. Keep doing it. In chapter 3, he gives them some encouragement. He's like, look, okay, keep doing it. Do all the more. You're loving each other. You're serving one another. Keep doing it. Keep doing what you've been doing more. And so the second letter, he's responding probably not too long after and just saying, hey, you're doing it. God has answered this prayer for me. And I'm so grateful that God is doing this. Not only they're growing in faith, but it says they're growing in love. So they have a deep faith, an abiding faith, a genuine faith, proven by how difficult it is to follow Jesus at this particular time. We see this at the end of there. So much that in verse four, he says, "We we boast about you. We boast about you. Man, I I pray that our church would be the kind of church we would boast about for the right reasons. Now, I I don't mean self-centered pride, being self-absorbed or consumed with ourselves. One of the best ways to really think about pride and to begin to turn it on its head is one of these things that he does. I don't know if you noticed this. And whatever you would finish like with, I am proud of, right? Replace the words, I am proud of, fill in the blank, with, I thank God for. I don't know if you Caught that. There's a way to see things as a result of your goodness, as your own work, your own merit. And then there's a way to see the world as we do, as like a God who gives us all things. This will change everything for you. Even right now, if you if you were to fill in the blank in your own heart, think about it. How would you say, I'm really proud of this? I'm really proud of this. Secretly kind of like patting yourself on the back. I'm, I'm okay. But if you would replace this, you'll begin to see the fruit of God's work in your life. Instead of saying, like, I'm really proud of this, we go, oh, my goodness. Thank God for this. Apart from his grace, there's no reason I would deserve this. That's one of the most powerful things we can do. Because something powerful happens when you begin to see things this way. In trial, and this is where I want to end, the object our faith is revealed. Notice, he says, I'm, I'm, we ought to give thanks. It's right to say, I thank God for this and I boast in what God is doing. We ought to give thanks for this. We ourselves boast, why? Because your f- steadfastness in faith in all of your persecutions and the afflictions that you are now enduring. Notice something he says, persecution reveals the object of your faith. And I would add to that, Persecution fortifies genuine faith. It destroys inauthentic faith. Persecution reveals what you really believe in, what you really hope in, what you really trust in. The way we talk about this on a regular basis is that we we think often we've believed in Christ, but what we've really come to Christ with is this, Jesus, I'll trust you if, and then we have this fill in the blank, right? Jesus, I'll trust you if, I'll follow you. I'll believe in you. I'll put my hope in you if. And we often don't know we have that. We don't know there's an if until that thing is removed. And that thing on the other side of the if, the I'll tr- God, I'll trust you if you'll give me prosperity. Jesus, I'll follow you if you'll make me be approved. Jesus, I'll follow you if you'll make me popular. The thing on the other side of the if is your actual God the thing you actually love, the thing you actually worship. And you only kind of like Jesus because you think he'll give you what you really love. And one of the most gracious things that God can do is to take that thing that you love instead of him away from you. And persecution is one of the most powerful ways this happens. There is no great, there is no greater there is no greater force for growth in the church than persecution. It's really weird. You think the way to grow the church is to like build big buildings and make it easy to follow Jesus. It doesn't actually work. It kills it, and a generation will be gone. In every single continent, since Jesus resurrected and ascended, the greatest single factor for growth in the church is persecution. Persecution fortifies genuine faith. It reinforces it. It gives it strength. But it will destroy an authentic faith. I want to speak directly to that. I know for some of you, you come here and, and, and you're like, you, you want to you wanna love Jesus. The thing I'm saying, like, okay, I want that, I want that, I want that. But there's this thing you're holding on to and you're like, I actually want this. And I want Jesus to give it to me. And this is the part where you hope I will say something like, if you'll just follow Jesus, I promise he'll give you that thing. And I want to encourage you, Jesus will just give you himself, which is infinitely better than that thing. And the thing you're clinging to, probably right now the thing you feel the least in control of or the thing that like is causing you the most shame, the thing is like causing you the most stress. It's actually God's mercy to rip that thing from your hand and give you something better. It's actually God's grace to remove that thing and give you something better. The way we talk about this is that uh we quote some, some 20th century philosophers to say that there is a good kind of atheism. There is a healthy kind of atheism. You see, when you, when you come and you worship this thing as God, your approval, your career, your achievement, your status, your success, when you worship that thing as God, you bow down to it. You do everything you can for that thing. There's a good kind of atheism when you stop believing in that God. There's a moment where you go, I no longer believe in that God. Usually because It fails. And I want to encourage you, that's actually an act of God's mercy to allow that idol to topple so that he can replace what was there with something substantive, and he places himself. And so for some of you right now, maybe, maybe like you're walking through a season of doubt or you just feel out of control, it's a season of chaos. Would you hang on for a moment? It might just be like right now, like I'm talking about this, and right now you're like, I don't believe in Jesus. And I, and, and I want to encourage you, you don't believe in the Jesus you built for yourself because it's failed you. And there's a really cool thing, the suffering that you're now enduring. And again, it's not even, i would be careful. You're not a snowflake. You're not actually being killed for your faith here, right? This is to a community of people who were like actually being killed for following Jesus. Be careful. We don't compare them, but we do learn something from them. And if there's a suffering that right now is causing you trouble, friend, count it all joy. It's evidence that God has not abandoned you. Look, man, if you went running into traffic, how much would I have to hate you to let you go? How much would I have to hate you to go, fine. But how much would I have to love you in order to say stop? Or even if I had to tackle you? It's actually God's grace to not let you run into traffic. And it feels like pain because that thing you were hoping in is failing. But I want to encourage you, you're just going through a very healthy atheism in which your idol is now dying and I think God might be supplanting that fake and false and unsatisfying God with his own gracious self. And the thing you want, the thing you're strangling people around you to get, I want you, if you look at the cross, you see it's been freely given to you. You want to be approved, give, God gives it to you freely. You want to be in control. God gives his sovereignty overall. Did you catch that? The very last verse five, it says, this, this persecution, the suffering you're now enduring, which we're, again, as consumers, can, like programmed to think is bad, he actually says this, this suffering that you think is bad, is actually evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may now be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Now be careful. Most, if not all, the suffering that you and I endure is because of foolishness and not because of righteousness. To speak for myself. Most of the suffering I've ever endured is because I'm dumb. Make bad decisions. And it's like, that hurt. Well, what'd you think? Right? It's like, God, why did that hurt? And he's like, you strapped a piece of fiberglass to your feet and went down a snowy hill. What did you think was going to happen? Right? <laughs> you put some roller skates on a, you get what I'm saying? And it's like, God, that hurt. And he's like, well... Most of the suffering we endure is like that. Bad decisions and God, in his mercy, allows the consequences of sin to linger to remind us of how good he is. But there is a kind of suffering, a kind of suffering that happens because we actually begin to be who God calls us to be. We begin to look like Jesus and less like the world. And that kind of suffering is a good kind of suffering. It's evidence that we are children of God, that we are a part of his kingdom. Don't miss the good news here. Jesus endured suffering because God wants you in his kingdom. Now you are enduring suffering because God wants you in his kingdom. The cross is evidence that God was willing to pay a high price to draw us into his kingdom, that we would look to him, be united with him, and experience a resurrection and joy and new life with him. And as we begin to look more and more like him, the things we Endure will actually reinforce your faith, not destroy it. Oh, suffering will remove your fake, inauthentic faith. But it will not remove your genuine faith. Why? Because genuine faith in Christ is indestructible. God has willed it to be so. He would never give a gift that he would rescind but instead the gift that he gives he will ensure we see here by proving it. 1 Peter, Peter one 1.6 says it this way, and I'll close this in this thought. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You resonate with that? Various trials. Why? Why would we endure these trials? So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, even though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friend, if you'll let it, God will use the difficulty, in fact, maybe the difficulty that brought you to this city and the difficulty that brought you to this place this morning. And if you look to him, you'll see he may have used that entire mess of difficulty to bring you to a place where you can now faithfully look at jesus christ and say he is now god our father he is a father who will not let you wander but he will through even difficulty even discipline draw his children to himself let's pray together god we thank you so much for your goodness We thank you for that goodness towards us in Jesus Christ. And we recognize, first and foremost, that we are no deserving recipients of that goodness. God, thank you. Uh, I echo the words of Paul. It is right. It is right that we thank you for all the amazing things you're doing in this room. I thank you for drawing these people to yourselves. I thank you even for this morning to be able to celebrate that you are a God that draws dead souls to life, that brings dead, buried, lifeless people to new and glorious life in Christ. Thank you so much that we got to see that, much less be invited to believe it. Thank you for this. In fact, if there's some in this room, maybe they wouldn't call you Lord, they wouldn't see Jesus as the one they are united to in faith. Would you even now begin to crack open their imaginations? Let them begin to ponder the probability that you are who you said you are, that you are not a God out to destroy them, but you've brought them here in this morning in your sovereignty to see you for who you really are as a loving father wanting to draw his children to himself. May they see that. May those in this room that have never considered that, may may they look to Jesus in faith and away from themselves. For the rest of us, God, we love to be reminded of how good you are to us in Jesus. But Lord, we so quickly forget. We confess that we regularly would rather consume and pursue other things that give us a fleeting sense of satisfaction. Would you even now overwhelm us with the satisfaction that comes from knowing that we are secure in Christ Fill us with the faith that is genuine and will last through the persecution and suffering that we inflict on ourselves, but even the suffering that may be in front of us in the future. Fill us with the love for one another that only comes from believing that we are the called out ones for your glory, and then fill us with a vision of your kingdom that will last through all suffering and difficulty. We know that you can do this, and we trust you to do it. Make it true for us in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.